Hey, it's Broken Office Chair, a podcast produced by Alternatives. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. Bessie is a Chicago native, first-generation Salvadoran Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to speak candidly about their experiences as people of color in their various professions. In the episodes, they'll address topics such as issues in the nonprofit sector, racial equity, DEI in practice, and much, much more. So stay tuned. All right. So today I am joined by Sufian Sohil. Thank you for being here today. Kick it off by you telling us a little bit about what your work is and how you fell into it. Absolutely. Bessie, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I am the Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel at Resilience Force. We're a nonprofit organization uh, aimed to train and advocate for workers who rebuild after climate disasters. Uh, the idea of the organization came after Hurricane Katrina when we saw thousands of migrant workers traveling to New Orleans to help rebuild the city after the storm that devastated it. And at that time, I think we in America thought that this was a once in a generation sort of incident. But since then, we've seen so many hurricanes and fires and tornadoes in the Midwest. And there's a workforce, mostly undocumented, mostly low income, which is traveling from place to place, uh, rebuilding with very little protection. So we're there to make sure they are educated on what fair wages look like, what safe working conditions look like, and also then advocating on their behalf if any of those are violated or they are abused. I think it's really interesting that you bring up this topic right now, given what's happening with what we're calling the migrant crisis. Um, I read somewhere that we should not be calling that because it um, implies that folks are migrating willingly and that they want to be here as opposed to what their actual situations would look like. So on what you've seen, what do you think is pushing this, and I'm putting in quotations right now, migrant crisis forward? I know I just asked you a really big question. Yeah, no, <laughs> you raised several good points there. One is on language that yeah. we use, and I think we have to reown the narrative and the, the use of the words that we want to be used. I, I was fortunate for the opportunity to serve on Mayor Johnson's transition committee and the immigration subcommittee, and a lot of what we talked about was what words we should be using to describe Chicago, to describe different populations that call Chicago home. Uh, you, you talk about migrants, um, and most of these people would probably choose not to come here. Mm -hmm. uh, my last job, I was a deputy director at CARE, Council on American Islamic Relations, and we dealt a lot with uh, refugee issues in the Middle East and North Africa. They were doing, dealing with famine and war, um, internal politics. And a lot of what we're seeing uh, from our southern borders is due to circumstances that individuals can't control, they're being forced to flee their home, seeking safety, seeking better opportunity. Um, but because of the political nature of some of these situations, I feel that they don't, their name is taken away from them. Mm -hmm. And the whole situation is taken away from them. And as a result, we're seeing a lack of safety for them, a lack of refuge for them. They're being bused to places that are going to be more welcoming, like Illinois. Uh, but even when they come here, they're, they're forced to sleep in police stations because that's the safest place that they can find to stay. And only recently have we started thinking about a lot of empty places around our city that 
we could convert into more permanent, temporary to permanent housing for them. I was reading an article that was talking about how they were staying in a park boathouse and um, they were being encouraged to not go outside because the amount of hate that was coming from the neighbors in the community. And I think it echoes a lot of what we're seeing right now. I, For me, the, my earliest memory of seeing this type of um, immigrant backlash was during the Trump elections. I know it started way before then, but for some reason that's when it really came up. I, what impacted me about the Trump election was he was talking about birthright citizenship in particular. And I was like, oh, my God, that's me. Like, usually I don't hear myself in some of these narratives. And so that was one of the moments of which I out of many that kind of stand out as a core memory. With that being said, what do you think is happening that is contribute to so much hate toward this population? You keep asking amazing questions, very <laughs> loaded, deep questions, and I appreciate you for that. I should have brought the drinks. I'm no, telling you, yeah. ready to go. The, um, I think we live in societies that there's a lot of misinformation out there. I, I, I feel we live in, you know, immigrant communities, vulnerable communities faced hate. But what I think before the Trump election in 2016, but what I saw from my opinion is it was became a lot more normalized mm -hmm. and okay to visibly publicly hate and the argument that is often used is if we support community a it's gonna take away mm -hmm. from community B and we're seeing that in Chicago right now with certain communities being like all right we're going to support these migrants quote-unquote what about my community mm -hmm. we're here we need food we need housing we need all these resources but you're giving them to them Mm -hmm. And I think we saw that a lot in 2015, 2016, is who are these people who want to come to our country? We don't know anything about them. They're going to take your jobs. They're going to take um, money away from you. They're going to take your homes away from you. And all it is is pandering to these different bases without properly educating or informing them what the reality is out there. I want to go on so many different directions right now. This is really tough because I was like, do I go around the education standpoint? Um, but there's a couple of things here. And you and I talked a little bit about this. I think um, from my perspective, a lot of what happens is that we are not good at teaching history outside of that very comfortable white centered history. Right. And so for me, when folks are like, um, they don't deserve these resources. We have citizens right here at home that need them. I was like, well, who do you think destabilized? Because my family's from Central America, right? So who do you think destabilized these countries that created the situation that now folks need to migrate? And I talk about my personal story quite a bit because one of the things I learned really young is that if it were up to my mom, I don't think she'd be here. And she's from El Salvador, which was extremely war-torn when she migrated, right? And, um, and so... Even now, she bought a house and she plans to go back there for retirement because her dream has always been to go back home. Oh, that's so great. Right. And so that to me just says how much she didn't want to be here, but her country was so destabilized and took such a long time to build that she was here. And so I want to talk to you a little bit, because I know you have experience overseas, about other examples of where you've seen U.S. involvement and what it plays into and the narrative that we hear here. Pick whichever. I know there's so many to pick from. You could pick no, whatever. so many. But you talk about a bigger problem that mankind and the history of mankind has seen in the last 
100 years specifically is we came to this country, forcefully migrated the indigenous population, which slowly eradicated them. We had the forced transatlantic slave trade. We had, you look at my family's from India. I, I worked a lot with the Muslim population, predominantly from Middle East Arab speaking country. In each of those situations, colonizers went in. They, they had control over India for a couple hundred years. And then when they were forced out, let's split this country. And now what you see is the current tensions between India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and all that that's resulted from that. You look at the Middle East and you had the Ottoman Empire until World War One, and it was arbitrary French and British clerks who were like, this is going to be a country now, and this is going to be a country now, and this is going to be a country now, without real thought or rhyme or reason, splitting up languages, families, cultures, faith traditions, which has resulted in so many years of destabilized regions of our world, which continue again till today. Um, and I think it's, we go into places maybe for, and I say we as the West, go right. into places um, for opportunity, power, political gain, and oftentimes when we leave, we don't care what we leave behind, mm -hmm. which leads to a bigger mess. That's interesting because is it that we don't care or is it that we purposefully destabilize so that we can benefit from that? Like, we have a huge market in war, weapons, our partnerships with our allies, all of that. So I was like, now I'm getting a little bit more controversial, right? But I'm like, is, is it that we don't care? No, you're right. It's we don't care about what we leave behind yeah. because of what we gain from it. What we gain from way. it, right. And I'm like looking at what's happening in Israel right now in particular. One of the things that has always been mind-blowing. So Israel is really interesting to me because I was actually there a few years ago. And um, I was there and I messaged a friend of mine who was living in Oman at the time. And I was like, oh, I'm in Israel. I'm like right next door. And he was like, what are you doing in that apartheid? And I was like, wait, what? Because the U.S. tends to be very pro-Israel, right? So I was like, wait, what? And so after he said that, I started looking into it, and I realized that I've never learned that story. And it's recent. It's in the 60s, right, of what happened there. And I think that is such a really good example because of how we've um, – how we portray that and port it, it furthers the agenda around who folks who are Muslims are. And we don't tell the entire story here. And I, I you know, stories are often told by the winners, mm -hmm. uh, those in power. Uh, a fact I just stumbled upon in the last couple of days is the United States has more Holocaust museums than it does like more than so many other countries combined, including Germany, Europe, and there's only like a handful of museums in reflection of the slavery that we had in this country. Why are we so scared to acknowledge our own histories, our own truths, and no matter how evil they are? And you look at Europe, especially Germany, which has since World War II a long tradition of teaching about the wrongs that it committed during World War II and before under the Nazi regime, having memorials in the middle of their capital city to commemorate all the lives that lost. But here, we're seeing such a pushback, even today, uh, from the governor of Florida, who's like, we have to skew the way we're going to talk about slavery and 
black lives in America. Not only skew, but they're actually trying to teach that folks got uh, that people who were enslaved benefited, got, <laughs> benefited, benefited that transferable mm-hmm. skills from it. Right. That's wild to me. If you're enjoying this episode, we have a few upcoming events that will be perfect for you. Join Alternatives and Broken Office Chair on October 5th at Chicago United for Equity for our second Cocktails and Complicity event. Guest speakers Ioka Samuels and Leslie Honoré from Broken Office Chair Season 1 will join Bessie in discussing the complex dynamics that perpetuate inequality in the nonprofit sector such as being a woman of color in nonprofit leadership, the nonprofit industrial complex, the intersection of capitalism and philanthropy, and much more. Come enjoy a cocktail, network with nonprofit friends, and engage in these much needed conversations. The link to RSVP will be in the show's notes. Have you been personally impacted by a toxic nonprofit? Do you have a nonprofit horror story you're dying to share? Then join us for Nightmare Before Christmas, an in person open mic night where nonprofit friends can gather and share horror stories about navigating the nonprofit industrial complex. Come prepared with your favorite story, poem, or song about the terrors of funder site visits, annual appeals, audits, and more. We invite you to share a drink with colleagues and revel in the joys of nonprofit life. The link to RSVP will also be in the show's notes. And now back to the show. Wild to me. Um, but you let that go unchecked, and that becomes a new narrative. That's what's heard and remembered, unless people keep fighting back against that truth. And I think we see something very similar uh, in Israel. Is for so long. Palestinians were oppressed and were silenced, and there were groups here who were trying to be a voice from them, but now we're seeing more and more people realize what's happening there is so, in, there's many injustices happening there, mm-hmm. and willing to speak out against it. And it's not always, it's not an either or, right? You can, you can be, you can have Jewish friends, but still speak out against mm-hmm. injustice. And uh, sometimes in some of the work I do internationally, I'm asked to pick. Right. But it's, it's not that simple. Like, I can speak out again. I can love America and being American, but I can still say that these are things wrong with my country and how we're oppressing people mm-hmm. in different ways. Why can I not do that with other countries? Do you remember how Michelle Obama came under attack for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, during uh, the election. But when I was in um, Vietnam, one of the things that stood out to me is that they have a museum. Have you been there yet? No, I have not. So they have a museum, and the first floor is letters. Uh, the whole thing is just letters from all over the world to the U.S. asking the U.S. to pull out of the war. And then the third floor is this really large mural-sized photography of the effects of orange gas on children, on the elderly, on like the devastation from the war. And I remember when I was traveling with somebody who was American and she had to leave the third floor because it was too much for her because we're not used to seeing these images and to be on the side of the folks who perpetrated so much harm, it was just too much. And I have these stories over and over again when I traveled to South Africa, um, learning that the US government funded the apartheid in South Africa, right? And when they finally figured out that they were wrong for um, funding it, 
And um, also, I was in the killing fields in Cambodia. And so each time I would listen to the tour, and one of the things that stood out to me is how these events escalated. And then the narrator of whatever tour would always say, we never thought that this could happen here. And that's, I think, the reality sometimes of being American is we've turned a blind eye to all that we've done mm-hmm. in terms of proclaiming ourselves as the land of the free, home of the brave, land of opportunity. All these people want to call us home. My parents immigrated from India to create a better life for themselves and their family. That's the story that we keep perpetuating and putting out there, turning a blind eye to the horrors and evils that we may be committing elsewhere in the promotion of concepts of peace and democracy and other such things. And it's, it's, there's dark truths behind it. I think too, with my parents immigrant, my parents also being immigrants, it was a very hard for me, a hard thing for me to accept. Um, because in my mind, I was always raised with everything you have here is way better than what you would have had in El Salvador. And that's always been my thing. Like the, my quality of life is so much better because I was born here. And I remember having to come around to reconcile that we could be awful and also I get, I get to benefit from being here. And I think that what I came to was that a lot of times we have to hold on to our notion of what the American dream is because if we accept that it's not true, right, then what did our family sacrifice so much for? I'm with you. I think we are still this country of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we are one of those few places where we can speak up. We can sit here and critique our government on mm-hmm. this podcast and actions and be protected mm-hmm. um, from reaction from government forces where a lot of places around the world we wouldn't be able to do this. Um, and, but I, and I think the world is starting to see through some of the falsities we project. Uh, have you ever seen the show Newsroom? No. It's, uh, it's great. Um, Jeff Daniels is, uh, plays a news anchor. In the first episode, it's asked, uh, why the student at Northwestern, what makes America the greatest country in the world? And one person- I've seen that clip. Yes, continue. Clip, right? And one person's like, freedom. One person says, like, bravery or something like that. And he, he says, freedom and bravery. And they hold him to answer it. And, he's, and he says, we're not. We're not the number one in all these things. We're not the best at all these things anymore. And he goes into specifics, which unfortunately I don't have in my memory. Um, But he says we can be, right? We can still work towards those things because we live in a country which promotes excellence, which promotes drive, which I still believe that we can be anything we want to uh, and create those. But then we also, on the other side, see these recent Supreme Court decisions Uh, with affirmative action, reproductive rights of women, and all of these things are taking away some of these very freedoms and opportunities which people flock to America for. And it makes me question, like, are we taking steps back? Are we regressing? Um, and are we still this shiny beacon on a hill that people are flocking to? I, once, I went to a citizenship swearing ceremony for one of my Canadian friends. Okay. And it was funny. I'm like, why do you want to be a U.S. citizen? You're right. Canada if you have Canada, like... Yeah, you okay. guys are great. But he wanted it, right? And uh, um, But seeing just the room, there was like 200 languages spoken. And all and more so than the individual being sworn in, it was the family members 
and the joy on their face and the pride in their face, like, I want to be this too one day. And I think we still represent that. I want to believe we still represent mm-hmm. that. But we have to do a lot of work to get there. I want to talk a little bit more about this. I'm trying to think about how to frame my question because we talk about the hope of our families, our communities, and migrating here. But I want to talk about what their experiences look like while they're here um, because I think that that needs to have a better picture painted. Um, I want people to understand the sacrifice and I don't know how you can without living it right but what does that look like in every day like if you mind me putting you on the spot what is it what did it look like for your family yeah so my parents came from India in the late 70s and what I saw with a lot of Indian and Asian uh, communities was this big desire to assimilate fit in Um, you know they brought in a lot of the generational trauma I believe from the homeland over here and navigating how do we work hard without you know stirring any pots like Mm -hmm. do we take our ethnic food for lunch are people going to ask what's that smell right everyone loves Indian food now but back then totally love Indian food (laughs) what's that smell why are you why are you dressed like this I wear Indian uh, like shirts and tops all the time now and people like ooh I love that but back growing up you'd be like ooh what are you wearing like why you know it was and kids are horrible to each other and they bully yes. each other and all that but I spoke with Urdu was my first language mm-hmm. and I spoke in a British accent so they put me who was born here in ESL class because I didn't speak English right you know <laughs> even though you spoke the actual like I spoke original actual English, English <laughs> right but, you know but I also spoke it with a little Indian accent because okay. that's how my mom taught it to me at home mm-hmm. um, and but that wasn't good enough for my suburban Chicago elementary school right so what are you telling you otherizing me from day one, showing me that I, I'm different than you are, and that has persisted, I think. Many of us of color are still often seen as others. Mm-hmm. They're asked, where are you from? I could be here, I was born and raised here, but they don't see me as American. Where are you from? No, where are you really from? And I'm like, suburban Chicago. I was born at Alexian Brothers Hospital in Elk Grove Village. No, no, but where are you really from? I was like, what do you else do you want to know? I'm like, Keeler, <laughs> that 2205 North Keeler? Like, yeah. is that what you want to know? Right. But then it's, it's it starts off as subtle discrimination, mm-hmm. right? You're talking about the food, the dress, the language. Um, what we saw in the Trump election was that being more normalized and calling things out more. But I even had friends who would refer to me as their brown friend, mm-hmm. right? And I it was only in my adulthood where... I was brave enough to say, hey, why do you have to single me out by my skin color or by my nationality? Why can't I just be your friend? Um, are you talking about the Italian friend as your Italian friend? Uh, and et cetera, et cetera. But it's, you're, you're seeing me, showing me as another because you're perceiving me as another. Uh, I, I had family change their names to be more American sounding. Then you look within communities. Um, I know many of our communities deal with colorism, right? Fair skin mm-hmm. is the better lighter is better um there's in asian south asian muslim communities there's pride nationalistic pride my country is better than your country Mm -hmm. um and i see that through friends i talk to from spanish-speaking countries as well right like oh you're from that country like we're pure or better or or that Mm -hmm. um we do i've seen uh classism a lot of classism within our own cultures as well like doctor equals best Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and not treating people humanely and with kindness and with love. And while they're navigating those, they're dealing with a lot of external pressures as well. And then you have an incident like 9-11 happen mm-hmm. where people are now like, who are these Muslims? Why do they want to kill us and attack us? Not taking the time to realize that it was a couple of bad actors who used faith to do horrible, horrible thing and that 99.9% of the world's Muslims condemn these sorts of actions like this, just like any other faith. And ignoring the fact that a lot of atrocities have been committed throughout history based on Christianity, including slavery. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But not faulting all Christians. Right. It, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, it's this double standards that we always have to deal with, too. I think people's also, uh, their miseducation also comes about from that, too, because my partner is um, Indian and he is Hindu, mm-hmm. but he often gets approached as being Muslim because people just can't tell. You're brown, something's wrong with you, right? Fun story, not really related, but um, we both did our 23andMe, and he came out 100% South Indian, like nothing else. And I'm like all over the gene pool. So I have uh, Spanish, indigenous, African, everything you can imagine except South Indian is in mine. And so I like joked with him that he's brown because he's like, pure and I'm brown because I'm a mud. So it's just all the <laughs> colors mixed together. But um, I think it's also really interesting because when I look at that, it tells such a story of what has happened in my history because I can see the generations back and the fact that folks were brought into um, our countries to be enslaved. I can see the colonizing background in there. I can see the wiping out of the indigenous history and so it's just it, it it was you get excited about learning about yourself but it's also so sad at the same time yeah. and how much do you carry that with you right now that we understand generational trauma how does that come into how did how did my parents take that on how does that impact me today how does that impact the people that I interact with because we all are also carrying that story with us and it's a part of who we are and you know I try to give my parents so much grace because they crossed a an lot ocean, of grace. <laughs> right, to build a brand new life with culture that they were never experienced to, and raising kids here um, in a completely different culture it was without sh- the language. A lot mm-hmm. of times, and a huge support either. Right, yeah. they had their families nearby. They had some friends, and they were able to build community. And uh, um, but it was just a brand new world for them that I could not imagine now moving across the ocean, raising family. And communication was so different, right? I can pick mm. up the phone anywhere in the world now. Right. And call. They were still writing. My mom was still writing letters. Writing letters and mm-hmm. or saving up to make that two-minute phone call to India every mm-hmm. month or whatnot. And, uh, you know, and, and they did what their best to give us education was better. There were better jobs for my parents here. And um, they saw more opportunity and a chance for a better life for us, which I see so many different immigrant groups I work with want that and they believe that. Uh, America still offers that and but on the flip side we make it just so hard for them and we make them feel so unwelcome and unwanted here and that's what I think needs to change I wanted there you reminded me there was um, with um, the Syrian refugee crisis they were showing all these boats traveling to Europe and I remember seeing a meme that was like and that meme but I don't know what the little photo of it and it was saying that you have to understand as a parent the only way you put your child on a boat like that is if you know that boat is safer than land and 
there was something about that quote that really stuck out to me that I because if we've all seen those pictures those quotes are horrific they constantly um, flip people die on them and parents are putting their babies on there and still people have no empathy for these situations are like go back home and um, coming back to South Indians I think that there's a really interesting perspective that you bring in that the way Asians are discussed today you want to talk a little bit about that yeah I want to just touch on the refugee migrant issue is mm -hmm. the world stopped when this boat looking to visit the Titanic yes the world stopped like Everyone's like, oh, praying for them that they get back safely. And unfortunately, like, it didn't happen, right? And, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I pray uh, for them and their families and definitely serious. But why? where is that love in the world for these people constantly fleeing war-tone, famine-ridden mm -hmm. countries, just trying to be alive? Mm -hmm. And where is that love and grace that we want? And, you know, it's, uh, I think I shared the story with you um, when we first spoke was, I went on this uh, exchange program with uh, Hamburg, Germany, and I went, mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of Chicagoans went to Hamburg, and uh, you know, I, I came in with my American ego and was like, yeah, Chicago, we had 200 Syrian refugees back in 2016, yeah. and my friends in Hamburg were like, we have 60,000, just in that one city. Mm -hmm. um, and just showing how much more welcoming some other places in the world have been, how much more of a heart that they've opened up to allow these people in, and uh, how much more that we can and should be able to do. Because again, as we said first off, these people don't want to leave. Like my Syrian friends who are refugees would love nothing more than to still be in Syria. Mm -hmm. But it's just not a place that's safe for them or their families. Mm -hmm. Now you're asking about Asians mm -hmm. and the way we talk about Asians, right? And I think Asians in a city like Chicago, um, the broader Asian community is like, not thought about, not talked about. You have Chinatown, you have Devon Avenue for Indian and Pakistani food. Um, but then you have something like COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And what happens is we all want someone to blame. So of course it's the Chinese and Wuhan virus. We saw so many restaurants and stores close, um, both um, in Chinatown, Rogers Park, other Asian heavy communities uptown around the city. Uh, we saw a lot of blaming. We saw a lot of violence targeted towards Asian communities. And the problem is, not that, it, uh, I'll state what the problem is, people can't tell different Asian communities apart. Mm -hmm. But that shouldn't be a thing, just like your partner. Like, it doesn't matter that he's not Muslim. He shouldn't be facing that right. anyway, and no Muslim should be facing that, period. Mm -hmm. We saw a lot of sick uh, Americans right after 9-11 who wear the turban who were attacked because people perceived them to be Muslim and they're like we're not but that doesn't matter right like, none of us should be experiencing hate mm -hmm. and so much increase in violence so much increase in um, the slander and dehumanization of Asian communities in early 2022 uh, throughout uh, sorry early 2020 uh, and which is continuing at higher rates now than it was pre-pandemic um, and it's really changed the landscape of how Asians are perceived. Uh, but then on the other side, it's always Asians are such a big part of Chicago, such a big part of American history, right? We built the railroads. Mm -hmm. um, but then 
We had the Chinese Exclusion Act. We had mm -hmm. Japanese internment, right? We had uh, the travel ban, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of anti-Asian, broader Asian policies. Uh, targeting groups that are seen as perpetual foreigners on one side, mm -hmm. never truly made to feel like they belong in this country, but on the other side, seen as a model minority, mm -hmm. seen as traditionally affluent, uh, educated, um, and but always dealing with that what we call bamboo ceiling of never being able to go a certain height um, just because of the stereotypes and discriminations they face. I want to, do you know, I should have looked this up before we talked, but do you know how many Asian countries there are? Total? Yeah. Not offhand. I, I want you guys to, they're Googling it for us while we continue to talk. Because I, with Africa, I think it's like 55 countries. With Latin America, I think it's like 30-something. I mean, I think it's like 33. It's 48 countries. 48 countries. And I want to bring this up because um, there's this idea of the model minority. And a lot of what we talk talk about when we talk about the nuance, right, that comes up is this concept of um, if you look at, like, even during COVID, let's use that example, vaccination rates. The group that was defined as Asians had much higher vaccination rates than any other group, including white folks. When you look at income, that tends to be a true statement, housing, whatever, whatever measure you want to look at. But the piece that we also don't talk about is that there are, what was it again, 48 countries and those stats do not apply to every single country no. and they also tend to be some of the most vulnerable poorest mm -hmm. disenfranchised communities as well um, due to language mm -hmm. uh, due to uh, culture issues job issues that navigating the education systems so what we often see are the asians who are up at the top mm -hmm. right the doctors the lawyers those but the recent immigrants are those um, just more economically challenged, not such so the case. And also there's a huge immigrant population that was also in, um, escaping crisis mm -hmm. and war as well, you know, that we don't talk about. And those are the ones who don't have those model minority type metrics that we're used to seeing, yes. right? Um, and so that is one of the pieces, though, that I want to highlight because I think people miss this nuance when they're talking about Asian American populations. No, definitely. Um, and same sort of thing that we see in Africa, um, that we see in the Middle East, that we see in South and Latin America is the there's conflicts going on around the world. There's 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 famines going around the world. There's climate disasters happening around the world. People are fleeing for safer places. And often those are the ones who need the most resources and support that they're not getting. So they are trying to move to migrate to places where they may get them. I'm like, where do I want to go? <laughs> In that so many different places. Right. That's what, do you want to think of? Pick, I've been asking all the questions. One, one thing that I was thinking about was, you know, after the murder of George Floyd mm -hmm. and we saw protests around the city and around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I had so many friends on Instagram, for example, just put up a black box and that was their only... Oh, my God, I hated me that. Me too, performative, <laughs> right? But then, like, days the actual protests were happening, I was so upset because uh, as an activist, you know, I'm, like, trying to direct people, like, these are different ways you can get involved, these are different ways mm -hmm. you can give back. But seeing people, like, look at me, I'm boat, boat, boat day today or bar day today, and I'm like, at least do not post this stuff. Mm -hmm. And... Celebrate in silence with the with the people who were trying to bring about change and honor of someone who had fallen. 
But what I want to mark is 60 countries had some sort of protest. Mm. Why are we not protesting injustices happening in other places in the world, right? And we talk about sometimes issues happening elsewhere and its effects happening here and vice versa and how much the world keeps an eye on what's happening in the United mm -hmm. States. But how often, I mean, we don't even know what's happening in our own country sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Like, how is slavery taught? How is indigenous history taught? How is World War II and um, even like the Gulf Wars, how are they being really taught, let alone what's happening currently in other places around the world? Why don't people, why do we all know about Ukraine, but we don't know about other genocides and massacres happening around the world? And why, why is there a disconnect happening that way? Yeah, my hope with that is that with social media, I almost feel like you have no excuse if you don't know the rest of it because I follow so many other sources of media to keep up with what's happening because our media doesn't report it, right? Um, actually, do you have any off the top of your head that folks should pay attention to? There's a bunch of great ones. You're uh, pulling up your yeah, notes? I'm pulling up my Instagram. <laughs> um, it's uh, – ones like I think shit you should care about or something like gotcha. that mm -hmm. and uh, there's so many like I think once you g open up one and then I see who they're following yes and there's more and more and more um, but there's like helping you give a shit about literally everything mm -hmm. right and everything from like one post says vasectomies prevent abortions one is talking about the SAG-AFTA marches one's talking about Neopets and North Africa and Australian state of Victoria has pulled out of hosting the 2026 Commonwealth Games. And you read just even <laughs> headings like that, but then understand why they may be doing stuff like that and how, I mean, I, we're so, the world has gotten so much smaller. Mm -hmm. There's news about everything, but also what's happening in place A does affect us in other places around the world. Mm -hmm. And more and more, and there's pushback against what I'm about to say is, but we are global citizens. Mm -hmm. We are part of what's happening in the world because it affects us in some way or another. And if it doesn't directly affect us, it could affect our neighbor or our communities. And we should care about that. It's funny, though, the fact that it even has to affect us for us to care. That's right. a whole other thing. Like, I don't need to be the affected community for me to care about exactly. this issue. Right. What about just being informed? being informed or just caring about people yes. or caring about this planet or, you know, whatever it may be. Like, you don't, again. We stopped doing that, right? And I launched a show last year. It's on Can TV. And uh, one of the things I realized while doing the show is how little do I know about issues facing my Chicagoans. Mm -hmm. None of them affect me mm -hmm. um, or my bubbles, but things like food insecurity. I live in the South Loop where within... 15-minute walk, I have four grocery stores. Mm -hmm. There's certain neighborhoods in Chicago where within miles there's no grocery store or fresh produce. Why doesn't that bother me more? Mm -hmm. um, I'm a man. Reproductive rights doesn't really affect me directly. Mm -hmm. but it affects my mom, my sister, my friends. Um, why, why am I not getting engaged more in issues like that? Everything from domestic violence to that, just being able to learn about it. One of my the most impactful shows I for me was... Um, a man who had spent 20 years in prison and talking about the issues he faced trying to just come back into society and the prejudice he experienced. And thinking in my head is if I knew he was an ex-felon, 
how would I treat this person if he had applied mm -hmm. to work for my country, for my company, mm -hmm. and trying to break down my own prejudices as well as be just more informed of what's going on around me uh, because I should care. I should care what my neighbor is experiencing. I should care what others in my bubbles are, are experiencing, but I don't. Mm -hmm. I love that you also brought up like your own prejudices. I think we're so scared to admit it because we might be seen as a bad person. Um, and what people don't understand is to have bias, to have prejudice is to be human. It's what you do with that. And you can't actively combat it if you don't even admit that you have it to begin with. 100%. So one of the things that came out of the rise of anti-Asian hate spike that we saw was partnering with couple different organizations to roll out a bystander intervention project uh, where we would teach how to identify biases and like just simple things that we could do to stand up show up for those facing hate or harassment whether it be a woman walking on the street getting catcalled to Asians facing increased hate because of their identity mm -hmm. and the first thing we said is like the spectrum of what disrespect looks like most of us focus on the physical violence or the mm -hmm. slander, but it's even like looking at you in a certain way. Mm -hmm. It starts that starts the roll the rock that tumbles down becomes a boulder. And how can we identify them within ourselves? Do we all have it? As you said, we all have it. And I look at my own self and my the what I've I've learned from my cultures, from my faith, from my community, from television, the prejudices I've had, and mm -hmm. you know, trying to identify and call them out to myself and slowly work to break them down. But it's hard. You have to be willing to put in that work. And also, but this is again where education comes into play too, because also just recognize that everything that you consume every day is helping to make you have prejudices. Yeah. At how, the, how things are framed, how language is used, Every, we started off talking about language, right? And so again, how are you not to be affected by any of this? And really trying to, you know, my thing is like even checking how much tension I hold in my body in certain spaces because it could be really subtle, right? It Just because it, you didn't give the extra look, but did you tense up? Did you check for the door? Or whatever it may be that you just did to protect yourself in that moment because of what the millions of messages that you are getting daily. It's hard, it, <laughs> it's so hard, but you have to take care of yourself. And I always say, give yourself and others grace, give yourself and others love. Those are the first things and know that it's a journey and we have, but it has to start with ourselves, first and foremost. If you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not putting in the time to really learn about what you don't know and what you do know, and how you're perceiving the world around you and the people around you, you're not gonna be able to bring about change. I completely agree. With that being said, I feel like you just left it on such a good note, but do you have any other takeaways for folks listening? Ooh, takeaways. I would just echo that. I think, you know, I want us to continue fighting for and building a world that we can all be proud of especially in this country. I think we have a lot of work to do. And uh, you know, I was on the school with some universities today who were just challenged with what the changes to our affirmative, po uh, affirmative action policies are going to look like in terms of recruitment and what their student um, population may look like in a couple of years. Are they going to be able to still attract and have more diverse student groups and things like that? And 
it worries me, right? Are, are we taking away from people who need support, need a chance, um, need that extra little push to show that they can succeed as well and do, and, and do great things? And I want to believe that if we all just open our hearts more and love a little bit more, we can truly, truly work towards building a better place. I want to throw a different uh, challenge out. If you can make everybody listening do one thing today towards this, what would it be? Talk to someone you may never have ever thought to talk to before in your life and just have a 10-minute conversation. Ask them who they are. Ask them to share their story and then share their story. And you may find that you have more in common than not. I love that. All right. So where can our guests find you online? You can find me on Instagram at Sufyan Sohel and also on LinkedIn, Sufyan Sohel. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. To keep up with everything going on at Alternatives or to donate, you can visit us at our website, alternativesyouth.org. You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook. If you want to keep up with Bessie, you can follow her on Instagram and TikTok at Bessie underscore Alcantara. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director Bessie Alcantara. It's produced, researched, and edited by Catherine Bess and Deanna Phillips. Thanks for listening. 